Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Robert Fry. And today we have a very good podcast. We mentioned Ethan Moore's recent paper about swing timing. And with that, we go into motor learning and a specific concept in motor learning, which is calibration. Yeah, we we also talked a little bit about Rob Gray's previous podcast and some of the ideas that we discussed with Rob and how that played into swing timing um, and Ethan Moore's paper. And yeah, Ethan Moore's paper, you guys should definitely check it out on swing timing. It facilitated a really great conversation today between me and Robert. So I hope you guys really enjoy our conversation today. discussed this a little bit last time, but um, want to give us kind of an update on how things are going week two of uh, being down at Quincy. Yeah. So this was kind of our first official week of practices um, with, with the whole, you know, uh, COVID-19. Um, we have to keep our practices in a very small setting so we can't really do what we really want to do but we have to keep it more individualized um no more than you know five to ten guys at a time um Mm -hmm. and you know so essentially for the most part it's about four pitchers and six hitters for the most part um on on the field at one time so but other than that yeah week two it's it's going it's going great so far um figuring a lot out with video so far and figuring a lot out with kind of the technology and the applications of what we're using here and going from there and so hopefully once we collect more and more data we get to the point where we can start i can start working my magic of building kind of dashboards and player development for our guys to get better. That's awesome. Well, should we transition to uh, Ethan's paper that he wrote on swing uh, on timing and uh, what we can learn from swing and misses? Absolutely. Sweet. Um, So kind of give an overview of what, Ethan did was he looked at four different hitters um, at the professional level and he looked at, he kind of put it into like a punnet square, low production, low whiff, high production, low whiff, low production, high whiff. Uh, I guess he then had a um, one with average production, average whiff. So um, I guess he had like a middle ground in there as well. Trying to see. Why didn't he have a high production high whiff? I don't know if there is such a thing, but that would have been interesting. Robert, do you know, is that such a thing as a guy with high production and a high whiff, high whiff rate? I mean, maybe not. I mean, the only, the only guy I could think of would be Joey Gallo, but that doesn't necessarily mean he does strike out a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean he would have a high whiff rate. Sure. Um, 
maybe he's the only uh, type of guy who will swing and miss a lot on strike two, but not the other, not the other pitches. Um, and it's also depending on how you look at it, it's also questionable to think what kind of production um, Joey Gallo is producing. If you want to consider him average production, I mean, there's some metrics to consider him as average, but there's also some to consider him a high producing hitter as well. Fair enough. So those are the the four types of hitters that Ethan looked at. So for low production, low whiff, that was Eddie Rosario. Um, for Fernando Tatis uh, Jr., he was high production, low whiff. Um, Mike Zunio? Zanino. Zanino um, was low production, high whiff. And then Max Muncy was average, average production, average whiff. Um, and so Ethan then looked at um, kind of he broke it down into a couple of different types of swings. Um, so he looked at swing timing and basically was the barrel on plane or in the plane of the pitch um, when or not in plane with the pitch, but like in the hitting zone and the bat would have crossed or could have crossed uh, the ball while it was in the hitting zone. Um, and then he looked for, he looked at like the bat speed, whether or not it had good bat speed. And then he also looked at barrel placement or barrel path. Um, did it actually, um, where did the ball actually hit the bat? And so he had two types of whiffs. That he was looking at type one where the let's see where the timing was good but the bat was in the wrong place and then two um the timing was poor but the barrel was actually in the in the right place um so whether that was too early or too late so that was kind of what Ethan looked at Robert, anything that I missed or that you want to add there for the overview? No, I mean, you pretty much uh, put the nail on the head there. Um, The one thing I will say is, you know, this was a very good study in understanding the different types of swing timing. And we will get right into explaining a little bit more about it. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, what I really loved about this paper, because to me, this is when we're talking about timing, I think a lot of times coaches just look at it as early and late and they don't really consider were you actually on time, but your barrel just was in the wrong place. So, for example, I think we talked a few times about this on the podcast, but high spin guys, we tend to swing underneath the ball. So our timing might be good, but because the ball is not dropping at the same rate that the average fastball um, moves at, we can be, our barrel placement can be off. And from a motor learning perspective and specifically like an ecological dynamics perspective, to me, that's a calibration issue. We, the, anytime we change an implement or we change a constraint, this being the um, 
Why am I blanking on this? The spin rate. There we go. Anytime we change the spin rate, that changes the task constraint and a hitter may need to recalibrate to a change in task constraints. So, for example, if you were to change the bat or the, you know, if you're throwing the ball weight, your body and your perceptual system may need to recalibrate to the change in the task. And so when it comes to guys missing pitches above or below, it's not necessarily a timing issue from whether or not they were early or late. They were actually on time. Their barrel path was in the hitting zone when the ball was. It just was not on the same plane. Correct. And the other thing that kind of peeked out to me was that, as you mentioned, like we typically think, oh, early or late, but that necessarily wouldn't mean a bad thing because once we associate with, say, an early, you know, a swing that is early and a swing that is late, we tend to associate by pitch location as well. And it wasn't really mentioned that much in the article, but I feel like from another perspective is kind of understanding, no, it's not necessarily bad to be early or late on something, but like most things, you know, how in journalism, you need to have a second source before you confirm it. This is another perfect example. This is why having that metric like barrel path is so important because it then signifies, okay, you may be early, but your barrel path is great. Great. You know, or you may be on time, but your barrel path is poor. And that's why this, this analysis is, you know, so meaningful because it again allows us to see hey, there's more than one way to solve this problem, a very common thing in ecological dynamics. Right. And I think this helps us when we're trying to help the athlete. Like we want to teach the athlete how to recalibrate, for example, if the issue is barrel path. Um, you know, so for example, when I'm working with a hitter, what I will do is I want the hitter to become aware of did they swing over or under that pitch? Because oftentimes if their timing's correct, it's really more about barrel placement and them trying to recalibrate. So I know I've used this example a lot, of, a lot on this podcast, but when I was hitting off the machine with um, Brady Vollmering at Cornerstone, I was, when we're doing high velo, I was continually just missing underneath the ball. And even though I tried to, focus on hitting the top half of the ball, I was still missing underneath it. It wasn't until I swung, I purposely tried to swing over the top of it. Did I actually hit it? And I continued to try that same um, focus or intention and it stopped working. Why? Because my system had recalibrated once I had actually made contact with the ball a couple of times, it actually recalibrated and then I could actually focus on just hitting the ball. So when, when it comes to calibration, we don't need to continually calibrate or use the same cue. Once we're actually calibrated and our system 
remaps where everything is um, in relation to ourselves. Again, so when we're talking about um, trying to hit a baseball, we're trying to we need to understand where that ball is in relationship to us. And so once we recalibrate or if we're uncalibrated, we don't understand where that relationship is. And then once we get calibrated, our system does understand that we don't need to continually try to um, tweak it. You know, for example, like if you adjust your sights, you know, by raising them up a little bit, you don't need to continue to raise your sights once you actually have it dialed in. And so that's something that I want to impress upon coaches is that a cue or an intention like swing over the ball may only work for a couple of swings. And once guys actually get it dialed in, they don't actually need that anymore and actually becomes detrimental if they continue to use that. Right. And so you, you put it in this way as well. Um, when I think of that is like, again, me being big into analytics coding, you know, once I use a certain way to say solve that problem for a particular instance, like, yes, I will, you know, that'll help me for however many times I need to help me for. But in the long run, that same ask or ideology for that specific task that I'm trying to, um, solve is may not be the best option or like you said may be detrimental and actually may throw me in for an error mm -hmm. yeah and to to go back to what we were talking about with or to move on to the next uh whiff type that Ethan talks about being early or late for me from an ecological perspective, it's, it's more about how does an athlete solve that problem, that timing problem. So everything needs to add up to when the ball is in the hitting zone. And this is something that we talked about with Rob Gray on our last podcast, where we were talking about, um, essentially the um, uncontrolled manifold analysis and basically their movements need to add up to the time it takes for the ball to be in the hitting zone, essentially to be able to deliver the bat and put it in the hitting zone when the ball is there. And so there are basically an infinite number of ways to do that. You know, you know, it comes to the question of, well, how many different different ways can you get uh, the answer five? And this actually came up in one of my machine learning classes recently is, again, like how many different ways can you get the answer of five? And the answer is infinite, right? You can go two plus three equals five. You can go 2.5 plus 2.5 equals five, um, you know, and et cetera. I mean, you could go seven minus um, two equals five, right? So again, when we're thinking about timing, the question is, is how does an athlete create adjustability in their swing to either uh, speed things up if they're late, whether that means starting earlier or having a smaller move to 
if they're early, how do they buy themselves more time to allow their barrel to get into the zone later so that they can actually um, be on time to hit the ball? And the common cue for, so if we're talking about the early example, the common cue, the cue that I experienced the most during my playing days was way back or sit back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that did not work at all for me because then mm-hmm. my thought process would be, okay, I'll sit back. And then my swing timing immediately drastically went from early to late. Like I have to sit back on this pitch. So that's a great example of, you know, it may have worked for, say, some of my teammates. If you say, hey, sit back, you'll you'll crush it. But for me, it did not work. And something else might have worked. It's maybe, uh, you know, for me, it could have been something like, you know, blink, you know, blink one extra time and you'll be on, on time. Or blink one extra time and your, you know, your swing time will be better for that particular instance. Um, and another thing on top of that is pitchers on the pitching side, because we had one particular pitcher in high school that really zoned in on this was he would always, he was very typical in that he would always start you with a fastball. He wanted you to swing at the fastball because he wanted to understand, were you early? Were you on time? Were you late? And that would set up the rest of the at bat because, you know, if, if he's late on a fastball, then he knows, okay, well, keep throwing fastballs. If he's early on a fastball, throw him a change up. Um, you know, if he's on time with a fastball, all right, you know, switch it to say a change up or, you know, maybe go a little bit harder on the fastball, something like that. Um, so more or less like his first pitch wasn't a max fastball. It was a kind of, Hey, like, let's see where where we go with there. Now, once you go to more advanced levels, I mean, that probably, especially the MLB level, that wouldn't work. I'd get me over fastball would get crushed. But at the level that he was at, that worked for him because he knew, okay, based on this, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this with the next pitch to better understand swing timing. Yeah, and the other thing too to remember on this is that at least from my view, is that there's no one right solution. Like, you know, so for example, if we're talking about being early, how do you buy your buy time to um, give yourself time to let the ball get to you? There are a lot of different ways to do that. You can, just like we talked about before with the example of how many different ways is there to get the answer five? Right. So there's an X amount of time for the ball to get into the hitting zone. Let's just say uh, for argument's sake right now, it's 400 milliseconds because we're talking about an off speed pitch. Um, so you could either keep your hands back um, as your way of doing that while still allowing your body to drift forward. You can see some guys, they will allow more time for the ball to get there by riding their weight forward into their lead leg. You'll see other guys, um, they will actually adjust their torso and start to lean forward with their upper half while their lower half mechanics stay relatively the same. Um, 
So essentially, though, from my perspective, we want to allow athletes to search for different solutions in order to be adjustable. We want them to be able to figure out how to still hit the ball well from various positions they find themselves in. Because if they if we only ever train them to hit with the perfect mechanics, what happens and what happens when they feel something isn't right? What what are they going to do? They're going to shut it down and take. And if it happens to be the best pitch of the at bat, so to speak, you know, they were they were trying to they were sitting on a fastball and it um or rather they're sitting on an off speed pitch and it was a fastball down the middle and they end up taking it and shutting it down because they felt like their mechanics were just slightly off um, and they weren't perfect. Um, that can be really frustrating. It's like, why did you take that pitch down the middle? Same thing could be said for a hanging breaking ball. Like if, if our goal is to try to get our players to do damage more often, they need to learn how to hit balls well and do damage when they find themselves in positions that are less than optimal. Um, we want to increase their bandwidth of ability to to do damage and to strike the ball well. And so in practice, we have to allow them to search and to explore different moves and find different um, ways to be successful. I'll give an example from a talk that Keith Davids gave um, that you can find, I believe you should be able to find, um, on YouTube. It's also in our discord server, I believe, um, from the Ireland, um, skills conference, I believe I'll have to double check that for you guys here in a second. But anyways, in it, Keith Davids was talking about, um, swimmers who were working on their dives and their coaches were really, really particular about how they should approach the, the diving board and how they should hit it to jump and then um, do their flips and their moves um, off the diving board. And what they were finding is, is that when they were really highly focused on hitting the board with perfect technique, they actually ended up faulting more often, meaning they would approach the board, they would hit it. And then instead of jumping and doing their flips, they would actually stop themselves. And if they do that in competition, they they get penalized for not actually executing the jump. And so what they, what they shifted and changed was they made it so that they, every time they approached it, they had to actually try to execute a jump. And through that, there was more variability that occurred, but they better learned how to, when they didn't hit the board perfectly, how to then actually get into the jumps and the flips that they needed to do and execute that technique much better with having variations in their initial contact with the board. And that led to better overall performance. And so how that relates to baseball is for us in hitting our load is like our, is like the example with the approach on the, the diving board. And can we, even if we get our load incorrect or our timing incorrect, can we still adjust our movements to be able to actually hit the pitch and adjust it to the timing of the pitch? 
Right. So another way as well is, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier, timing may not be the biggest issue. Like if you are early and let's say you hit a, let's say you just roll over it, but hey, Mm -hmm. defense is playing you a little bit differently. It might work for you. Now, is that the kind of result you want? Not necessarily, but hey, you're on first base. You're not, I wouldn't complain in that way. You know what I mean? And I guess this is my question to to deviate slightly, and I, don't, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but is there a metric to actually demonstrate skill versus luck when it comes to hitting to hitting balls into gaps? So for example, pulling a ball down the line or hitting the ball through a hole in a shifted defense. Like, is there a way to show or to decipher luck from skill when it comes to hitting, you know, like the ability to hit the ball the opposite way when the situation demands, you know, right. I also think that think of it similarly too. when guys hit through the shift. I mean, there's to me some level of skill to actually be able to hit through a shift. Correct. So honestly, there's, there's not really the closest metric we could probably get is uh, expected weighted on base average. But the issue with something like that is it takes exit velocity, how hard the ball was hit and launch angle, the degree at which the ball came off the bat, but it doesn't take into account fielder positioning. So, like let's say a exit velocity, there's an exit velocity of 60, launch angle of negative 20, like the same rollover example I gave it to, to you. But that got, you know, that would just have a very small hit probability. Yet, you know, the person that did it knew, hey, they're shifting on me. Let's just hit a small tapper the other way, where the second base would generally be playing in a normal defense. But now that I know that that side is wide open, I'm just going to, you know, hit a little tapper over there because I know I'll get on first base that way. So X-Wolf is probably the best, though. It's, again, like there's no, I want people to understand there's no perfect baseball metric stat that is going to be like a cure-all or a solve everything. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, having a second statistic or metric that pairs with it really makes it stand out. Again, not perfect, but it really adds to, adds kind of context and value to whatever you want to describe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for, for people wondering uh, about the uh, talk that I was mentioning, um, it's from Movement Skill Acquisition Ireland, um, Professor Keith David's uh, webinar on athlete enrichment training, a balance between specificity and generality of practice. Um, highly recommend you guys check out that that talk that he gave um, back earlier in the year. Um, super helpful. I would also say too, you know, when we're looking and thinking about about this, we really want to think about how the athlete is connecting to that information, right? How are they coupling their movement 
to the ball flight information or to the pre-pitch information and the ball flight information. And through that, they're going to be able to better make adjustments in their swing. And like Rob talked about on the last podcast is that there should be more variability in the beginning of the swing. And then as you get further along the sort of the, the chain or the kinetic chain, and we get into the bat and the bat path, there is less variability there because as time elapses, there is less time left for, for um, the actual bat ball contact to occur, right? So it makes sense that the swing part of the swing is going to have the least amount of variability, but everything up to that point should have more variability to it in order to get, you know, to use the example before of point or sorry, 400 milliseconds, everything needs to add up. All the movements need to add up to 400 milliseconds. Addition to that, we have to be spatially in the right place, um, barrel wise. And so that's where in order for us to help hitters become more attuned to making either adjustments or to being able to, or basically to, to be more attuned to make adjustments, we want to help them understand and use the information that they're getting from their swings. So for example, like you were talking about, Robert, you know, if you pull a ball foul on the ground, that should give you information about uh, your barrel orientation. Um, also, too, where you more than likely hit it on the barrel. So, you know, can you make an adjustment of, say, for example, using something like Caleb Abney talked about, can you hit a ball over the second baseman's head um, or, you know, hit a fly ball into the gap, uh, opposite field gap, you know, as your adjustment? Um, so things like that, I think are like simple fixes instead of always going to the mechanics, um, as the reason why the athlete missed the ball, it could quite simply be that the athlete's mechanics are fine. Um, or, um, it could be that the athlete's, um, system, perceptual system is not calibrated to the information or quite simply, the reason that the mechanics are off is because the athlete is not able to connect with the information in the environment. Um, there's, I need to go back and find this quote for sure, but within the Mental Game of Baseball book, um, essentially there's a whole chapter on like where the author uses the um, Charlie Brown. Um, cartoon where he basically says something to the effect of, you know, my mind and my body haven't spoken in years. Our goal as coaches should help the athlete be able to connect their mind and their body. And is essentially what they're able to, their perception and their ability to connect with the information in the environment, meaning in this example, the pitcher, the ball, and how it's moving towards them, the hitter, improving the athlete's ability to connect with that information and connect, not just visually seeing it, 
and perceiving it, but also connecting their body and their movements to that. I think that's hugely important to help athletes get out of their body, so to speak, you know, highly focused on internalizing or having an internal focus on what their body is doing, but instead really focusing on how do I couple my movements and how do I couple my body or connect my body to the information that I am, that is right in front of me and part of the task. Yeah. And so the one thing that kind of hopped up from that is think about it this way in terms of, you know, connecting mind and body. Mm -hmm. Let's say, you know, left-handed hitter at the plate. Um, and you know, the pitcher is just going to throw you a bunch of backdoor sliders, but the simplest way for you to ignore those sliders is just not to hit them, but you watch three strikes go by. Obviously nobody wants to do that. So knowing, and also let's assume that, you know, you're at the collegiate level. Um, and let's say it's, you know, non-power five D1 slash D2, et cetera. Most of those guys will, will not or cannot be able to pull the ball hard and hit it in the air simultaneously on a backdoor slider. That's, you know, down in the way at that level, at least um, for the most part. So how do you, you know, how do we as coaches say, hey, you're going to, you know, you're going to get this or not even us as coaches, but how's the player say, hey, I know I'm getting a backdoor slider. How should I, you know, take this approach and understand, hey, this is exactly what I'm getting. I know, like, like you said, I'm connected to this information. What do I, you know, what should I, what should I do in this situation? What's, what's the, what's the goal here? So it's, it's more or less trying to figure out, Hey, what's my goal? Because it can't simply be, Hey, I'm going to hit the ball hard, pull everything because that it may work for the most part, but that's not going to work in every scenario. Well, so I think we have to remember, and we haven't really talked about this yet, but we're dealing with a complex adaptive system, right? The human body, you know, people are complex adaptive systems. And so what that means is that we are constantly changing, right? Our system is, you know, energy levels are changing, you know, different stimuluses create uh, different emotions, etc. right? You know, so any approach that we have over time will have to change with the system changing, right? So there could be a time where an approach where if your, if your system is highly attuned and calibrated, and I'm going to use those words a little interchangeably, like meaning if your system is highly attuned, it is calibrated. You can actually, and it's calibrated and attuned for that intention of hitting the ball as hard as you can and pulling it. Dude, it might not matter. You know, like you, you can do that sometimes a ball slider, backdoor slider away, still able to pull it and hit it hard. Maybe you're not going to elevate it as much. Maybe it's a line drive through the infield. 
Um, maybe it's a hard smash on the ground through the through, through the five six hole um, or pull down the line, whatever. Sometimes that works, but it, like to your point, Robert, it's not going to work indefinitely, right? Because the system is going to change over time, and at times it may need to get recalibrated. You know that, and some of the ways that we've done this in the past, and when we're talking about. Um, the motor learning theories from, for example, ecological dynamics, which we talk about a ton of here on the podcast, it really helps rather explain some of the things that have always worked for us that we've known that has worked. So for example, you know, Bellinger might be doing great trying to pull the ball and hit it as hard as he can for like the first, I don't know, quarter of the season or half of the year. Right. And then all of a sudden it stops working because the system has over time fallen out of calibration or attunement. Um, maybe it's not attunement, but rather calibration and he needs to recalibrate. And because he's been so pole focused, he actually needs to get recalibrated in the other direction. And what do we normally do with guys who are um, too pole happy and it stops working? We get them focused going the opposite direction again, right? And that recalibrates them to be able to drive the ball to all fields and to pull the ball again. Um, but to say that that is always the answer again, once the system is calibrated, you don't need to keep, you know, once you have the, the site on target, you don't keep moving the target, right? So if you needed to move, adjust the target or to get calibrated, you had to go right. You don't, once you get on target, you don't keep going right. Um, that just actually gets you off the target. So essentially, I think we want to remember that the system is changing and that the things that we use today might not work tomorrow. And we need to get good at teaching the athletes the process of getting calibrated. You know, when they show up to the ballpark, hey, am I dialed in? Is my system calibrated? Awesome. Cool. We're good to go. But if it's not calibrated, do they have a process by which they can recalibrate their system, whether that's in practice or when they find themselves in the game? And really, all I'm talking about here is what coaches have talked about forever in terms of making adjustments. That's all we're talking about here. But now we're using um, terms and ideas from motor learning to help us better understand the concept that we've that we have been preaching for years in making adjustments. Yeah, exactly right here. So when we're thinking of again calibration. Really, it's more or less trying to get the athlete to not only be able to calibrate, but recalibrate quickly and calibrate maybe within one at bat. He may be calibrated for one swing, needs to recalibrate, you know, after the next swing, and then is able to recalibrate on the third swing. It can be as quick as that. It can be you know, a little bit slower over, you know, some practice time. But I think as a result here, it's understanding, hey, we need to be able to, in the basic coaching sense, make adjustments or in a motor learning sense, calibrate frequently because we know, you and I both know, and we've been saying this frequently, is one set calibration will not last you forever. Mm -hmm. 
And two, what this looks like when it comes to the practice environment is we want to encourage athletes to explore and learn how to get calibrated. So for example, you may want to change the task, you know, so for example, if we're doing BP um, or like, you know, they're doing, let's, let's stick with BP. So we may shift the task on them of maybe changing the pitcher and maybe changing the pitcher's handedness. This will force them to, to learn how to recalibrate to new pitchers. So for example, like you were talking about Robert, it, it may work fine for a guy to recalibrate over a number of at bats when he's facing the same pitcher, right? Like a starter. But when a specialty pitcher reliever comes in, they need to be able to get recalibrated to that new pitcher. Sometimes they might not need to, and it won't matter. Um, when the, when an athlete is highly attuned, it they're, they're able to, when they're highly attuned and highly adaptable and highly dexterous, right? Um, basically the three things that at emergence that we kind of like to use as our, as our um, tagline, right? Attuned, adaptable, dexterous. When an athlete is in that state, you know, they're, they basically, it doesn't matter what pitcher you throw out there. They're going to, they're on that hot streak and they're going to go four for four that day or, you know, five for five or whatever. So, but it's important for, for those other times that the athlete has in essence to borrow this, this term of attunement, like they're highly attuned enough to the information in the environment on how to make adjustments to their swing um, to get recalibrated within and at bat. And and one of the best guys that I've seen um, do this um, in the past was Torrey Hunter. Um, guys used to, you know, for example, like you're kind of talking about Robert, throw him sliders, sometimes back doors, sometimes um, back foot and just get him to swing and miss and look awful. Um, and they would just keep attacking him with it. So strike one slider, bad swing and miss strike two slider, bad swing and miss throw it again. And boom, he would launch it. And that's something that I think is trainable. Like we need to create environments where it forces the athlete to have to search and make adjustments to their movement solution one of the things that we talk a lot about at Emergence is we want to practice the process of solving the problem rather than repeating the method of solving the problem. And that allows us to essentially, I really like this quote, um, the, the methods may be a million, but the principles are few. And so if we can learn the principles of how to solve a problem, we'll, we will be able to successfully pick, and the quote goes on, successfully pick whatever methods we want. And that goes back to the adjustability piece that we talked about before of how do you make an adjustment with your body if you happen to be too early um, or you happen to be a little late? Do you have movement solutions in your toolbox? And do you have experience making adjustments in practice to allow you to have that ability and capability in the game to do that. 
We don't want that to be the first time. If I'm a good coach, I don't want that to be the first time that, that my athlete is put in that situation um, to, to be able to try to solve that problem. Like I want them to have experience with that before they get into the game. Right. And that's something that I've talked about with one of our coaches here as well is creating that representative environment, especially mm-hmm. in a practice environment. Like I am 100% with you as a good coach. You should not have your players go into an environment they've never been to in before. Now, sure. There's environments like, you know, different field types. Um, definitely, you know, first college game, et cetera. But in terms of kind of the nitty gritty stuff of pitch types, et cetera, we should, as coaches, be able to say, hey, you've already been in this environment before. We should really be saying, okay, instead of saying, here's how, here's how you should move on a slider down on the way, taking from the Tory Hunter example, just say, hey, we're throwing sliders down and away. You figure out something you like in terms of different movements. I guess, you know, really the idea be, be behind um, this idea in ecological dynamics of degeneracy, the idea of degeneracy is how many different ways can you solve a problem? You know, again, we have all these, and we talked about this with Rob Gray, we have this degrees of freedom problem. Essentially, we have all these degrees of freedom and all these different ways that our joints can move that is only a problem um, when we don't know what to do with it. But when you actually have a ton of options as the constraints, like this, this goes back to the constraining to afford idea as constraints get added, it becomes more clear which options you have left on the table to use. And, you know, if we're talking about decision-making here for a second, the way the human system makes decisions is it goes with best fit. It doesn't go for most optimal. It goes with first best fit. And, um, you know, I've talked a little bit about David Snowden. One of, one of his things is of why we do that is that, you know, if, if we think back to, um, you know, earlier in our history, when we used to um, be more hunter gatherers, when a, you know, a yellow animal with sharp teeth starts running after us or running towards us, we don't want to necessarily sit there and like figure out, okay, what's the best way for me to deal with this situation? Like I need to identify what this threat is and I need to uh, figure out the best way to deal with uh, this seems to be a tiger. No, you actually want to, as soon as you see that first best fit run, like get the heck out of there. Right. And, and basically our decision-making under high stress works that way. We go with first best fit. And in some ways, when we're talking about self-organization, we're also kind of, that plays into that idea a little bit of the system will organize it self around the first best fit um, to solve that problem. Um, You know, with all the available resources that the body has, it's going to organize them in the, in the best way possible. And if you ever worked with people, if you highly micromanage them, you're not going to actually optimize for the best solution rather than giving them more autonomy to actually figure it out themselves. And so that's really what we're kind of talking about when we're talking about um, self-organization. But anyways, 
I digress uh, quite a bit there. Um, but essentially, we just want to create scenarios under which we can allow for athletes to get better at the process of being adaptable and adjustable and being able to find the, the best solution, even when they happen to be in a disadvantageous situation. Because again, like most coaches talk about handling adversity. Do we ever train that in their actual movement solutions versus just abstract more in the general sense of the game? I think we also have to take that down to the actual movements and how we actually view the athlete performing across the board. Yeah. And so I guess that, that then begs the question, you know, we as humans are, you know, very, very uh, designed for when we do get into pressure situations, Hey, find, find the first thing that works. But again, that may not be the best, this, you know, first best fit may not be the best way to go for everybody. So Yes, this begs the question, how can we help, you know, frame the minds of these athletes to say, hey, the first best fit may not be the way to go? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm telling athletes about this, right? First best fit. I think we just want to understand that when when a person gets into a high pressure situation, they're going to go with the first best fit. Like you don't have time, right? Like that's why the system kind of works that way. Um, but rather we want the system to be better able to extract information from the environment and then find a solution to fit that, if that makes sense. So we want to essentially create scenarios where the system is interacting with information that is relevant to the skill that they're trying to do. So if we're talking about hitting, we're talking about pre-pitch movement. So the pitcher's kinematics, and we're also talking about ball flight and spin rate and all that sort of stuff and uh, ball movement. Right. So coupled with the swing, right. It's not, you're not going to learn how to couple your movements if you don't have the actual swing component. Cause to me, that's the most important thing, but for the most part, it's, it's really about that process of learning how to solve problems in any given situation you find yourself in. And if you only ever practice doing it perfectly, you're, you're going to really struggle doing it when you find yourself in a less than perfect situation. And I think, in my opinion, that puts our athletes at a great disadvantage if you haven't trained them to be able to perform and to perform well and to take the principles of hitting and be able to apply them in various situations, such as disadvantaged situations. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever, you know, not have them hit in a optimal way. I do think though, that you will find that the more, the optimal way will show up more quote unquote. And I don't like the word optimal because Quite honestly, you know, if if we think about like Bernstein's blacksmiths, they hit the same spot every single time and their technique was different on 
every single swing. And so if we're talking about, if, if we know that the human movement system doesn't repeat the same movement over and over again, um, except by chance, then like there is no real perfect optimal swing that we're trying to recreate. It's again, going back to this idea and this concept of we're trying to create better problem solvers under any situation and circumstance. And I think that is kind of counterintuitive to, um, and I haven't really reconciled it, but like this notion of being process driven, I think you can be process driven if you're focused on being a problem solver, but that is still in my mind, highly results oriented. Um, you know, you can put other principles within there and constraints in terms of, you know, like how you want to go about solving that problem. Um, whether that's, we want to optimize for, we want to put a constraint in there of hitting more fly balls as an example, that will shape the athlete's movement and it, that will shape the athlete's intention and, and by extension or, or, you know, that will also lead to shaping the athlete's movement. So the intention will shape the athlete's movement and that will, that will change their mechanics. And that might be more of what you're looking for as an example. Okay. Okay. So then I guess that, that leads into, you know, understanding that you may have a different intention on, on a wide array of things, or you may have a different intention, say, you know, three sequences into a pitch. So again, going to that slider example and Tori Hunter, he may have had completely different intentions for the first two pitches, but then his intention, or in this case, process, uh, varied, and he ended up with a result that was more results-oriented, as you mentioned. I don't know if it was necessarily results oriented, right? It's more about the movement system is going to try to achieve the intention of the organism, right? Or the athlete. So sometimes like if we talk about a flow state, you know, like athletes oftentimes when they're hitting really well, and I, and I used this example before of an athlete who was really bad at recognizing pitches, you know, and he could never tell you what pitch he hit, but on the season that he was doing really well, he would smash curveballs. Like guys would throw him a curveball, he would swing and miss and look awful on it. And then they'd go back to it and he would lace it, you know, for a double in the gap. And he had no idea that it was a curveball. From an ecological perspective, we can explain that through attunement. And attunement is not something that is necessarily conscious. Like it's not a conscious thing. Like the system your subconscious or your perceptual system is taking in way more information than you could be conscious of. And if you actually allow the system to, to work more, if you allow the system to connect to the information in the environment, and you, this is again, to me too, when we go talk about the training environment, we want to train athletes to actually be connected to the environment to the environment and the information they're in, especially when we're talking about attunement, we want to be highly sensitive to the specifying information, the information that basically tells us 
where the ball is and where we need to be in relationship to that um, information and how we should be moving with respect to that. And so we need to essentially, this plays off of this idea of being present, right? Like something that I believe Alan Jager and lots of other coaches throughout the years have talked about this idea of being present. And this is where, for me, this is super exciting in the sense that now we can better understand what that means. When we're allowed to be present, it allows us to better connect with that information and connect our body and our movements to that information. So, you know, for me, at most, and I think coaches, most coaches know this, is that the athlete can have only one thought at most in their mind, maybe two, right? And you're kind of pushing it with two, but one thought or intention. And I like to more frame it as an intention. They need to have one intention and it needs to be clear what that intention is. And they just need to allow themselves, again, this is this idea of self-organization. They need to allow the body to self-organize to achieve that intention, right? Based upon and allow that that system to self-organize in connecting to the information in the environment. So hopefully that that helps or answers kind of your question or what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought up a great example to kind of help me understand that better. Yeah. Cause I know in my experience and a lot of the athletes I've talked to already, when they go up to the plate, they cannot, some of them say, I can't even think of anything because if I do, then it'll just become mind games and, well, and they'll yip themselves up. Right. Yes, exactly. Because then they'll say, I mean, in a real basic example, I know for me, it's like, okay, like, let me try to, you know, swing quicker or let me try to swing quicker. And then I'll start to think about, okay, for me to swing quicker, I have to move my hands quicker or I have to start, mm -hmm. start everything quicker. And then I'll just be, my, my body will say, okay, well, you're going to do one thing quickly, but everything else is going to be slow. And your entire sequence, or in this case, your degrees of freedom slash, um, you know, range of error will, as, as you sequence into swing, it goes from large to small, as we talked about on uh, the podcast with Rob Gray. Then in my case, it'll kind of be in reverse. The error goes from small to great. And... I will produce a not very good result. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think to simplify it really is that we want to get the athlete to be better connected to the information in the environment. And sometimes like, it's not to say that we can't ever, you know, say like, hey, you may need to start earlier, but we don't want to tell them exactly what to do because we want to allow them to search for what actually works for them. Um, so essentially when the way that I view, like if I'm going to tell a guy to start earlier, I, I'm going to talk to them more about it. Like, hey, I want you to experiment with it. You know, I want you to maybe over-exaggerate it. And then maybe like, again, we want to encourage the search process for the athlete, rather than giving them the answer, we want to facilitate 
an environment where they can find the answer. And sometimes we want to, with our, um, for example, you know, striding earlier or whatever, starting earlier, we can give them examples, but I really want athletes to explore because it might actually not mean striding earlier. It actually might mean for them starting earlier means they start getting into their legs earlier, right? It's not actually the stride. It's actually about preparing their body and getting their body ready and connected to the, to the movement of the pitcher. That is more what's going to help them get on time than them actually striding earlier. Because what can happen is if they stride too early, put their foot down too early. Now they have the, the issue of being like, now they need to figure out how to coordinate and buy themselves more time to allow the ball to actually get in the zone. And if they just become static, basically it becomes harder for them to actually create any rhythm and timing in their movement um, and in their swing. And so essentially we want to encourage them to find the way that works best for them. And it's very hard for us to always know what the right answer is. So to me, a way to hedge me giving them the wrong answer is to actually just help them and nudge them to explore, to actually find that, find that answer for themselves. And to really try to, again, what I think this whole conversation for probably the last like 30 minutes was about is helping with them with the process of making adjustments and being a more adaptable and dexterous athlete. Yeah. And to kind of piggyback about, you know, being more dexterous, adaptable, et cetera, is don't really think about, I guess the way, the way I kind of see it is I'm not really thinking about, okay, Hey, I'm going to hit this double in the gap. It's more like how many times or how many different ways can I achieve, say, a double in a gap? Right. Um, it doesn't mean it, it, just the right center gap, right? It could be the right. left center gap. Right. Because in my initial thought, it's like, okay, I'm going to hit the gap. My immediate thought was right center gap. But there's also the left center gap. And also, how you get that ball to said gap, there's, again, in in basic terms or like we mentioned how many ways to solve for five there's infinite ways that ball can reach the gap so it may not be i mean obviously the main goal would be hey get get off a great swing hit the ball hard but there's also hundreds of others of ways to get the ball into the gap and it it could very well work in my case um and either gap so Again, if I'm mentioning, hey, I want to hit the ball hard to the pull side, but if I hit it in the gap opposite field, maybe not as hard, but hey, it lands in the gap, I'm on second base. What's what's the issue there exactly? Well, right. And that's the thing, though, is like we know hitting is hard. And I get that we're oftentimes trying to play the averages, but um, or the odds, so to speak. But we also need to try to teach them the skill of being able to actually pick up information in the environment and to give them the skill and the ability to actually exploit that information. Right. So for example, being able to notice where the, where the fielders are playing, you know, this is something that, 
you know, I've, I heard very young in my career, you know, like when I was in junior high or high school, you know, I believe it was like pro athletes and guys who had played at higher levels talking about, you should be looking up to looking where the defense is. I mean, and it, this brings, and I don't want to get, we've gone on for quite a while here, so I'm not going to go too deep into affordances right now, but essentially see what the defense affords you the opportunity to do when it comes to offense. You know, like if the third baseman is playing back, do you have the ability to um, drop down a bunt there for a hit? You know, is that within your toolbox and your repertoire? Um, you know, noticing where, where guys are playing, do you have the ability, if there's a heavy shift on, for you to put the ball to one part of the field or the other? Um, I think, yeah, we may never be able to, or always, you know, put the ball exactly where we want, but I got to believe that we should be able to train athletes to be able to put balls to certain areas of the field. Um, and I think that's something that too often we've, we've made it like, we've made it seem like this impossible task. Like it's not trainable. Like it's only for some athletes, but I think if we go back to some of the concepts that we laid out here today, the idea of calibration, you know, like if you start to investigate and play around with some of these ideas and the application of them beyond just the examples that I gave and take them as principles, I think we can actually develop hitters that have the capability to hit balls in gaps or openings where the defense is not. Right. And the one idea that popped up to me while you were mentioning, hey, where to hit it when, you know, there's a shift on. So let's say typically you don't face this shift as a left-handed pull hitter and you can just mash it pull side, you're fine. But one day you look up and you can see that there's a second baseman that's about 190 feet from home plate playing in the outfield grass. Mm-hmm. Now, does does your, let's say your profile is a pole hitter in that particular moment, since you haven't really trained going the other way, you always hit pole like there's nobody there. What do you do? So this is more or less of understanding, okay, well, if I do profile as a pole hitter, I'm going to have to pull it. But this time, it'll probably, in this case, it's solving this problem of either I can hit a chopper to that said second baseman and try to beat it out, or I can hit it, you know, much harder, if you will. Uh, essentially what I'm saying is there is so many different ways to solve that problem. That doesn't mean, that does, I'm not necessarily mean, you know, hey, oh, there's a shift on, I'm a dead pole hitter, let's just give up, roll over, call it a day. That you should be able to say, hey, I can, again, uh, we've mentioned so many times, adapt to this and say, well, you know, if it doesn't really matter if I'm not on the, you know, exit velocity leaderboards or if I'm not on, you know, does it really matter if I don't put my best bat on this ball, but I get on base either way. Understanding that you don't necessarily need to hit the ball hard every time. 
and you don't necessarily need to hit it in the direction you want every time to achieve that result. Right. And I think too, it's not that we shouldn't strive to improve somebody's exit velocity. I think that is super important, but we can't neglect or we shouldn't necessarily neglect other skills. Like, you know, if we can, if we can improve their ability to hit the ball to different parts of the field, I think, and again, it's going to be situationally based, right? So for example, if the infield's in the type of hit that you uh, need to be successful is going to be different, right? If you got a guy on third with less than two outs, there are a lot of different ways that you can get the job done. And again, it becomes really important if you're go- if your team's going to be successful at a high level. The more often that you can cash guys, you know, when they're in scoring position, is hugely important for you winning the game, right? So. You know, to your point, Robert, like it doesn't always need to be the perfect swing to get the job done in those scenarios. But you do have to have, you know, this again goes back to this idea about affordances, which I was going to save for another talk. But still, um, since it's there, I'm going to take that opportunity. Um, Is we want to also improve guys' ability to perceive affordances, you know, what are opportunities on the field? But also, what does the pitch afford them to do, um, you know, from a swing standpoint? Does this pitch afford them the ability to put the ball to actually solve that problem? And so when we're thinking about swing decisions, so to speak, we want to improve or enhance their ability to detect affordances and to be able to um, interact with them when we're talking about pitches that actually allow them to solve that problem. Right. So again, I don't think that this is anything new to people necessarily. The language is slightly different, but I do, I do think it helps us give a different way to think about it. It has more explanatory power than, um, in my opinion, than it, than our traditional views. It expands upon our traditional views and gives them a scientific backing. And so that's why I highly encourage people to continue to learn and to dive into these ideas of motor learning, specifically ecological dynamics um, further. So Robert, do you have anything that you want to finish up on? No, I just want to mention that. Yeah. I mean, I'm with Garrett as well. Like understanding ecological dynamics, I feel like has helped me better understand analytics as well. Um mm-hmm. Being because now instead of saying, in my case, it's you know, now instead of saying, Hey, he hit this ball at this exit velocity and at this launch angle, his expected batting average is supposed to be this. Um, now we can say, He hit this ball at this exit velocity and launch angle, but given the information that was presented to him, this was the optimal result. Or this well, was I would, a, I wouldn't say optimal result, but I would say, you know, this was a positive result, though the analytics, if you will, based on, you know, just exit velocity and launch angle may not be the optimal result or the the best case scenario. Right. I mean, because so the, as you were saying this, two thoughts came up. Um, 
I'll go with the the last one first. Um, you know, think about those times where you actually hit the ball on the screws and it's a fly ball out on the track, on the warning track, right? Like that's got the good launch angle. That's got the good exit velocity, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the second thought that occurred is like from an analytics perspective, it'd be really interesting to look at what was the expected, um, was it uh Woba? Is that the right yes. word I'm using? Yes, right. What's Woba. the expected, what's the expected Woba on that pitch based upon its location, its spin rate, its movement characteristics. What was the expected Woba on that pitch? And if guys, um, can do well on pitches that have a low expected Woba, you know, and are able to get success there. I think that's like, that could be a way to, for us to assess whether or not we're creating more adaptable and dexterous hitters. And two, I also should again, throw in there attuned, right? They're highly sensitive to the information, in the environment that allows them uh-huh. and enables them to be adaptable and dexterous. So just to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying, Robert, because again, I, it, it makes me really happy that you, you said, said all that about like better, a deeper understanding of motor learning theories, such as ecological dynamics can also enhance what you do with data analytics. Yes, it, it absolutely can. And so we can also approach it in this way of understanding luck versus skill. Again, mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. mention, you know, Oh, this this batted ball had a low, you know, expected wobble of one hundred. Yet you got on base with it. Is that really is that really luck, or is that skill? Then you can run, you know, statistical analyses, blah blah blah. Where you know, if he does it X amount of times, then you say, okay, this is actually a skill that someone can do. Right, and as coaches, I think. You know, if we understand these ideas and these principles, what it should allow us to do is to enhance or rather, yeah, it it should allow us the ability to create conditions for athletes to stay hot longer, right? Like in my mind, like if, if we say hitting is just luck, well, is there a way to enhance the amount of luck an athlete has to increase their odds? And can we facilitate that? And I think that is the power of eco- of like motor learning theories, such as ecological dynamics is that it, in my mind, it gets us thinking as more of a facilitator, right? So I like to use like a gardening example is if we're tending to a garden, we don't, we don't cause the plants to grow, but we create conditions for them to flourish. And if we can increase, um, the length of time that the, you know, athletes are allowed to flourish and create, continue to create fertile conditions for them to have sustained success. I think that's really the power of these ideas and these concepts is it should allow us to, um, essentially expand that allow them to stay in that zone for longer and or allow them to um, make adjustments out of like a downturn faster. I mean, that's, that to me is the power of these ideas. Well, should we wrap it up there? Do you got anything else you want to add? No, I think you wrapped it up pretty well there. Well, if you guys um, want to, 
should join uh, the, the Discord server. Um, I'll have a link in the um, description. I've got some good resources up in there as well. For if, feel free to um, drop thoughts and ideas in the Discord server as well um, and some discussion. Um, let me know too. I have a bazillion um, different categories in there. Uh, let me know like which categories you want more information in. Um, I can definitely provide it. I mean, we got everything in there from strength and conditioning to motor learning theories um, to analytics and a bunch of other um, media resources um, for you guys. So feel free to um, add yourself on there and then to, to follow myself um, and Robert on social media. Um, you can find me and follow me at G B O Y U M zero one, um, on Twitter, um, on Instagram, you can just drop the zero one if you want to follow me on there. And then Robert, where can they find you? So you can find me on Twitter mostly, um, at Robert Fry, F R E Y 40. And then you can also follow me on Instagram as well. Robert period F R E Y one. And then you also have a. I also have a LinkedIn as well. And my LinkedIn's Robert Fry. I, I was meaning YouTube channel. People should also follow Robert's oh, YouTube yes. channel. Yes. I, Reese, <laughs> I, wow. I see when you don't post for a while, you forget you even have it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I recently posted a YouTube, uh, YouTube video uh, Thursday after not posting for a month. And uh, it's going over Shiny, which is kind of a web application slash website framework for R. So, you know, you uh, let's say you have all these hitter reports and you, you're tired of looking at slow Excel files. Hey, Shiny is a good way to see all those reports visually and have a much faster load time. So you guys should definitely follow um, Robert on YouTube, subscribe, like, uh, make sure to hit the notification bell and all that sort of uh, youtube stuff. Um, so, yeah, thanks, guys, for listening. And till next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.